Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 89 featuring my guest, Pro Wrestling Illustrated's senior writer, Harry Burkett. Before I get to my conversation with Harry, there are a few items that I wanted to talk about. Since the last time I recorded, there have been a couple of more losses to the pro wrestling community that I just wanted to acknowledge here on Shut Up and Wrestle. Joyce Grable, the lady wrestler who really was one of the most prominent women's wrestlers of the 70s and 80s, several times co-holder of the NWA Women's World Tag Team Championship. She passed away. Uh, She had been battling cancer for quite a while. In fact, I had met her at Cauliflower Alley Club last year, during which she received a special award of recognition. And she talked in a very inspirational speech about her struggles and about what she had been going through. And just a very positive woman and a pleasure to be around. It was a pleasure meeting her. And I was very sorry to learn that she had lost her battle with that terrible disease. So I just wanted to say that we here at Shut Up and Wrestle are remembering the life and legacy of Joyce Grable. We also learned that former NFL Super Bowl champion and pro wrestling legacy, Russ Francis, passed away in a tragic Cessna plane accident about a week ago. He was 70 years old, and he was flying a a small Cessna plane with one other man who also was unfortunately killed in the accident when the plane did not make the runway. Of course, Russ Francis was the son of Ed Francis, the longtime promoter of pro wrestling in Hawaii, who had bought the territory from Al Karasik and, and really was the man who ran wrestling in Hawaii in the 60s and 70s before selling to the Maivias, but Russ also wrestled in his own right. He appeared in the Battle Royal at WrestleMania II and did a lot of other wrestling, and as I mentioned, was a tight end in the NFL and a Super Bowl champion. So we also remember the life and accomplishments of Russ Francis. I also wanted to add to this something a little more close to home and a little more personal that I wanted to put out there into the world. As he recently made public on social media, my my good dear friend and colleague, Kevin McElvaney, the editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, has recently gone through something that for, for most of us is truly unthinkable as Kevin lost his wife, Megan, to cancer just a few days ago. And Megan, I, who had had the opportunity to meet 
with Kevin at the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And I had intended to go to visit them not long ago to, to visit and to see the PWI offices. And uh, I wish that I had done that at that time. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to. I'm very sorry to see what my good friend Kevin has had to endure. And so uh, I just wanted to say that our thoughts and prayers here at Shut Up and Wrestle are with you, Kevin. And I would just appreciate it if that could also go for all of the listeners of Shut Up and Wrestle. If you would please keep Pro Wrestling Illustrated Editor-in-Chief Kevin McElvaney in your thoughts and prayers as he copes with what most of us could never possibly imagine. We love you, Kevin, and we're thinking of you. So I think without further ado, speaking of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I'm going to take you to this week's conversation with Harry Burkett. Harry is someone else whom I'm privileged and honored to work with as a contributing writer to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. I have known Harry, although we've never met. I've known him for years. I've been working with him as a co-staff member of PWI, working remotely for years now. And Harry is another old-school wrestling fan like me. So, you know, when you get these old-school fans together, you know it's going to be a good time. And we talked about so much great stuff in here. Old-school WWF championship wrestling, Mid-Atlantic championship wrestling, just the joy of collecting wrestling magazines. And there may even be a little bit of apartment wrestling talk in here. So I hope you'll listen. I hope you will enjoy. And I will take you to the conversation right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, it is my pleasure to welcome to the show yet another member of the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Masthead, somebody with whom I'm proud to share that masthead. It's sort of been a running thing among many other kind of running things I do on the show. We've had people like Kevin McElvaney here and Al Castle, and we're continuing it this time with a man who has been with Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I believe unless I'm wrong, for longer than anyone who is currently on the masthead there, at least uh, outside of photographers, let's say, editorial people. He was once the editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He is now senior writer on Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He is Harry Burkett. Harry, thanks for coming on the show. Well, great to be on. Great to be on with the Dick Cavett of Pro Wrestling. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Walter Cronkite of Pro Wrestling or the Dean of Wrestling Journalists. Well, Cornette just called me the Edward R. Murrow of wrestling. So oh now I goodness. don't know. I don't know where to go with that. I mean, I where's think, your chain smoking? Right, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, I, I think I went with Dick Cavett because, you know, it's a little bit more relaxed and not as I, you know, but I guess, hey, I'll take it. It's a compliment. I'll take it. But um, but yeah, so I mean, I've had so many different people. I've, I, I've had a lot of people on the show who I worked with at WWE. That's like one running theme of the show. I've had tons of wrestlers' children. That's another running theme. And the other one is, because of how much I love wrestling magazines, is having uh, people from that world, especially for some of us who are longtime wrestling fans, names that we remember. Because I found that I had become one of those names. I never even realized it or banked on it. Now I get people that come up to me. And say, I was reading your stuff, you know, when I was a kid. And I'm like, okay, 
a kid. Wow. But but was I right what I said before that you were the that you're the old the I don't want to say old. You're the right, oldest. Right. You're the you're the most tenured member of the yes. PWI um, Masthead. Dan Murphy and I were pretty close. I think I made it there about six months before he did. Uh, so after Stu retired, yes, that's true. Um, I began writing for them in January of 1997. Um, I'd actually had uh, correspondence reports published in The Wrestler and guest editorials published as far back as 1986 because uh, longtime fans may remember the magazines Wrestling 83, Wrestling 84, Wrestling 85, which I really think were the greatest wrestling magazines of their era. To me, they were the closest to a legitimate looking sports magazine. And they had a guest editorial. And my guest editorial was about how the uh, Vince McMahon running Survivor Series on the same day or going up against uh, Jim Crockett's uh, Starcade was hurting wrestling. Now, when I read it, I disagree with absolutely everything <laughs> that I I that I wrote because I guess I didn't get uh, competition and capitalism and all that stuff. But um, but that was a big thrill to be in that magazine way early on. And I also sent my resume into Stu Sachs as soon as I graduated from college back in 1993. And back in those days, you got a response, even if it was a rejection letter. Mm-hmm. I remember Stu sent me the most thoughtful letter back that I wish I'd kept. I know he kept it on file for years and years, but it was very encouraging. And he said, well, uh, try to get experience in other areas, writing for newspapers or magazines. So I sort of circled back three years later and they took me on board as a freelancer. And what year was that? Was that, that was 97. 97. The big holdup. He okay. called me in November and, uh, Back in those days, they had just relocated from uh, Long Island down to Ambler, Pennsylvania. And sort of uh, a change in the way they did things was they wanted to hang on to the writers that had been in the office in New York. So they made it possible so you could send your work uh, through a modem. And they had a, comp- a, a computer sitting by itself there in their uh, editorial room in the Ambler. And, you know, it's the old uh, dial-up modem. And I would send my work in. It, so this was before email. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of worked out for me. They had created this for the longtime writers that they didn't want to lose, the ones who didn't want to move from New York to Pennsylvania. And um, I was that first crop of non-New York writers. Um, yeah, Steve you know- Anderson was there at the time as well. He, he, he might have been out of Minnesota. I had Bob Smith on the show a while back and he was saying how that was like the deal breaker for him was the move. Um, I guess I should ask him. I don't know why he couldn't have just availed himself of this modem opportunity because he told me that he had moved out there to Long Island. He had gotten all settled Rockville center area, whatever it was. And Stanley Weston was just like, we're moving. And uh, he, at that point, decided to to bail, that he just uh, didn't want. Uh, I don't know if maybe uh, they had, he didn't want to contribute remotely or something, but but that was kind of like a deal breaker. Well, my understanding is that the, the three, what I would call the, thrim- the principles of PWI, which would be Stu Sachs, Craig Peters, and Bill Lapter, all did make the move and very much yes. enjoyed living in suburban Philadelphia. 
Yeah, the, yeah, and in fact, um, I've talked to a bunch of them about that because I remember when that happened. And and ninety seven because my prime collecting years for the so called Aptor magazines as a fan is like around ninety one. Even though I had been a fan of wrestling before that, it's about ninety one. Up until that late 90s point, I got back into it when I started contributing to it after I left WWE. But one of the reasons was, and I'm sure it was death for so many wrestling magazines, the Internet. I started getting turned on to how much information you could get on the Internet and not even just news, but like reference stuff and title histories and things. And I started moving away from wrestling magazines, which I wish I hadn't have done. And I think the other thing that it was interesting to see how the magazines rolled with the punches. Another thing was they were still holding on to, to kayfabe pretty tightly. And um, that was just going away. And it was very hard, especially when you're living in a world where the most interesting stuff is turning out to be the behind the scenes stuff. Right. And then in a magazine, they're still kind of like treating it a hundred percent dead on. Like it's a sport. That was something that I know has changed over the years, and I think it had to, right? I mean, how else could you have survived? Yeah, in 97, even that early, um, we didn't really talk about it, but you could see that one day the internet was going to surpass us. You know, people were being connected, you know, through the modem and and whatnot. But you could see a window of, of it would take a certain amount of time to get there. And I remember some early conversations you know, back in those days, we were still doing the, the PWI weekly, and those were on Mondays. And um, because I did work in the office pretty soon after I started freelancing, I started by uh, going in two days a week. So I had another publishing job. I would work uh, 30 hours between Monday and Wednesday. And then I would um, typically drive to uh, Ambler on Thursdays and Fridays, and they would put me up in a motel. But this is because in 97, it really took off. This was sort of the second real uh, boon period for the wrestling magazines, the first being in the late 80s. But this was uh, sort of a return to that because they got to the point they were publishing 60 wrestling magazines a year. Wow. So so that's basically five per month and what they had seven or eight different titles. And now it's nine per year. So right. And and but you could see it in, on the horizon. But at that time, there was still that window where it was like they were like hotcakes. You could not produce them fast enough and was get them to stand. Was there also a situation with Wow magazine? Because didn't that sort of like push you guys in a certain direction because they were all on board with with completely pulling the curtain back and they had Bill, right? And they were gigantic, physically gigantic. Um, You know, I mean, that had to be a scary time. I know even from when I was at WWE magazine in 2000 and they were still wow was still hanging on. And we were they were we considered them our number one um, competitor at that time. Uh, If I remember correctly, Shane McMahon in particular, (laughs) magazine. And I think they even came out with a special XFL issue. And the complaint was that their logo was too close to the WWE's XFL logo. And there was some sort of problem. But um, when we first lost Bill to WoW, the, the 
felt like a death blow at the time because Bill Apter, he was the man with the Rolodex. He was the one where Hulk Hogan would call him every couple of weeks. Jerry Lawler would call him every week. And you thought, well, once you lose Bill, you're no longer plugged in. But the same internet that was coming up also saved us hmm. because we didn't, we weren't as reliant on Bill Apter's Rolodex. We could somehow reach them ourselves you know, online or, you know, it was more connect, became more connected rapidly. It was not in the dark ages anymore. And we could just reach out to the wrestlers. So was there, but was there in the beginning of that transition? Like, did you get a sense from the wrestlers of just like, wow, Bill's not there anymore. What's going on? Like, or like, I I don't know if I'm going to talk to you guys now. Was there any of that kind of thing? I don't, I don't really remember it being dramatic. Um, I, I think I was surprised at how seamlessly it went. But um, speaking to WoW Magazine, of course, Bill being there gave it instant credibility. And I do remember, I think our sales were still very strong against WoW Magazine. But like, if you just took our uh, our lead magazine, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, head-to-head with WoW, I'm sure WoW was selling more copies. And just anecdotally, I just know around my circle of casual friends or people I knew I knew who were wrestling fans. Wow. Was very much the cool magazine and yeah. PW was very much out of fashion and seen as old fashioned. And I compare that to today where I feel like it's the exact opposite. Right. Now the, the two, early two thousands, it felt like we were out outdated. There's been a lot of shift and a lot of credit goes to Kevin McIlvaney. The, the current editor in chief has been doing it a couple of years now for really helping the magazine to stay relevant. I think he's done a great job of doing that. But the interesting thing, like you said, I remember a time, and even going back before I was a fan and when I was very young, going back to it now, you could clearly see in the 80s and 90s, at least up until that Attitude Era period when when things changed, um, the outside of the WWF, the rest, which is like the lion's share of the industry, but outside of the WWF, the pro wrestling industry really embraced pro wrestling illustrated. Like they, they seem to really understand this is our vehicle. This is publicity. This is how you get the word out. And they really gave the rub to you guys. Like you'd see Bill after on the shows, you'd see Stu once in a while, if he climbed out of his shell, you'd see, you know, like there was a recognition almost like this magazine is the official publication of this industry. Like it was sort of treated in that way. I remember those classic photos from Starcade 83 where Angelo Mosca was wearing the big red pro wrestling illustrated t-shirt and they were, they were truly everywhere. But um, to con- kind of continue the story though, you're talking about how wow really forced us to up our game um, visually presentation wise. Um, if you remember, we were uh, basically, I'll call it newsprint paper. Yes. Everything was black and white. If you bought PWI, you had the full color centerfold. But WOW really did force us to, in one fell swoop all at once, go slick paper, full color, add pages to each magazine. So we went from doing, say, 60 magazines a year to doing fewer, but they were much more high, higher quality. And that happened around 2001 when that big transition took place. And that was because of WoW Magazine. And as you know, it kind of went full circle. Uh, WoW Magazine, 
from what I understand, sort of collapsed, not because it didn't sell, but because his parent company, which uh, was responsible for the Beanie Baby Empire. I think there's a new uh, movie out about that. There is. Yes, that they collapsed. And so did everything along with it. And Kappa Publishing ended up buying WoW Magazine. It bought the, had the logo. We even got their old computers. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, you know, the color and slick pages thing, I remember, and I this is before you were there, but I know you were a reader of the magazine. There was a brief period in the early 90s when WCW started having the the London publishing guys do their magazine. My assumption is that they pumped a nice little amount of money into London, some of that sweet Turner money, and they were able to do a full color, slick, all slick um, PWI for like, I don't know, it felt like I think it was like a year or two. Now, I remember as a kid, I thought that was great because, yeah, you know, I mean, the newsprint was like, especially in that era, maybe in the 60s and 70s, you know, it was different. But by that era, by the time I was, you know, you had WWF magazine, which was beautiful to look at, full color, nice and shiny. It, it, it almost seemed like WWF magazine seemed to get slicker every year. Like, I don't know how they did it. It actually got shinier every year, <laughs> the paper stock, whatever they were doing. And so that was that 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 made a difference. And later on, you know, when it went when it went back to it, I was very happy. Although I have to say, this is we're getting into the weeds now here on magazine publishing. But I'm going to say it. As, I don't know if other people how other people felt about this. As a kid, I always liked it better when it was when it was when it was stapled instead of perfect bound, which it's still perfect bound to this day. I find the perfect binding. That's where for for, for the non-publishing nerds. Perfect binding is where you have the spine with the where it's glued in, right? All the pages are glued in. And I found when they were doing that with newsprint, it made the magazine kind of tend to fall apart, especially if you if you were using it heavily and reading it and really, you know, kind of it was getting a lot of mileage. The pages started to kind of come out of the glue binding, whereas I found that that happened less with the stapling. But of course, the upside is with the with the perfect binding, you could um you could um, have more pages than you could with uh, saddle stitching, which I think is what they call the staple binding. If mm -hmm. I remember my publishing terminology, right. Even when I went to WWE, I fought against it because our magazines were saddle stitched and then they were starting to move towards perfect binding. And I'm going, guys, no, 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 no. Listen, the, this is the, you don't want to do this, but I lost because you can stuff more pages in and you can charge more money. And so there's all these other factors at work. But I actually liked it better when it had staples in it. Yeah. And of course, you had the PWI centerfold. And even though when you yes. pulled that out, you had those little, little tiny holes where the staples were. I still like that better than when they had to adapt it where the centerfold folded on, on the back page of, of, of the binding you're talking about. Right. Yeah, well, one thing we should mention, we're talking about all the magazines that were put out. For people not familiar, um, this company put out all kinds of magazines and specifically Stu Sachs and Craig Peters and Bill Actor. They were all involved in putting out at least five other boxing magazines. In 1997, they had a hockey magazine. They had uh, they Kappa Publishing 
it is different from the original publisher, Stanley Weston. He dated from the 50s through the early 90s. And then Capital Publishing purchased it. And what they specialized in, because they owned their own printing plant, was they bought struggling titles. And the wrestling magazines were struggling in the early 90s because wrestling's popularity was on a downturn. They had the steroid trials and all that. But they kept titles alive, but they did them a little bit cheaper. And they had cut out the middleman. And one of these titles they purchased was Country Beat Magazine, which was a popular country music magazine at the time. And I recall I'd only been freelancing for maybe six weeks. And Bill Apter, Bill Apter was the editor of Country Beat Magazine. If there's one person and, I think about when I think country music, it's Bill Apter for sure. Right. And he had talked to several country music stars and he just loved it. And he asked me to send him some ideas. Like at that time, this was like getting the, like the golden key. Because it wasn't just getting access to the pro wrestling magazines. It was everything else they did. And uh, he says, well, you know, send me some ideas. And, you know, I'm thinking wrestling mode, like top 50 country music stars, just like sort of the same format that we do with, with wrestlers. But they, I ended up not working for Country Beat or any other publication because I think they realized I was suited for the pro wrestling because I'd. You know, I collected all their magazines while I was growing up and I was thinking, you know, I think I told my mom once these are going to come in handy one day. <laughs> it took so, several year, years for that to happen. So but, you were, maybe you were were you pitching things like, you know, Merle Haggard and, and Willie Nelson's secret plot to destroy Garth Brooks, you know, that, that kind of thing. Right. Or like fictional things like a superstar dream concert, you know. Right. Or a supercomputer is instructing Reba McIntyre in the, <laughs> the best set list to put together for her concert. Yeah. And a, a little footnote to this. Even though I was, a, I was a big wrestling fan, actually a bigger fan of PWI than wrestling, if that makes sense. It does. I actually applied for a different publication. I was also a fan of this magazine called Remember, which was a pop nostalgia magazine. And they would talk about things, oh, like uh, Bewitched, you know. Or I remember this thing, I, yeah. And I bought this regularly. I really enjoyed it. And uh, one month I picked it up and I was about to take it to the cash register. And I looked at the masthead and it said, Stu Sachs, Craig Peters, Bill Apter. Here we go again. Kappa had bought this struggling title, Remember Magazine. And uh, now they were uh, running it. And uh, Craig Peters was the editor of that. And I remember he did an interview with um, with Audrey Meadows from The Honeymooners. He had just done that. So while these guys are churning out five pro wrestling magazines a month, Bill Apter is putting out a country music magazine. Craig Peters is putting out Remember Magazine. Stu is overseeing the boxing magazines as well. Bill's taking pictures for the boxing magazine. It is just incredible how they had that down to a boilerplate formula. I'm just glad. It sounds great that you actually got responses when you were sending in these things because I did what you did. When I was in college, I was writing a column, wrestling column for the college paper, which I had to fight like hell to get in there because they were just like, they looked at me like I was crazy, like I was writing a, I might as well have been like writing like a white supremacist column or something. The reaction I got to wanting to put it in there, but I got it in wrestling, not white supremacy. And I was doing that and I was covering local 
indie shows for the neighborhood paper. Like I was building up all these clips. I sent them in uh, to every magazine I could find and in even other places too, like the daily news. Cause they had the slammer and I got nothing. Like I'm trying to think I'm, I don't think I got an answer to anything. And I, you know what I think? I think I should have been st- sending to Stu. I was sending stuff to bill and this is not no mm. fault of bills, but I just think he was just on the road. Probably constantly he had a million things going on. And he probably wasn't reading a lot of that mail. So maybe I should have directed it towards Stu. But I had given up. I After I got out of college, I was doing other kinds of writing. I was working for a book publisher full time. And then I wound up falling into WWE like a few years later, just on a whim, seeing the ad in the New York Times. But um, I had it wasn't like this neat flow in from college. I had sort of like moved away from it for like three or four years and then got back to it. Wow. Well, I was impressed uh, about 14 or 15 years after I sent Stu that initial letter, you know, I I was working in the same room with him and I reminded him that I'd sent him a letter back in 1993 and that he'd sent me the, the nicest response. And he reached right down into his file cabinet and pulled out my original letter that I had sent to him in 1993. <laughs> That's <laughs> Stu for you. So I, th- I thought that was neat. And I want to mention the other thing that I that I enjoy about the stuff you do too. Now that we are also now we're on the same masthead, is I would have to say, aside, you know, I do one of the things I wanted to do when I got there was to do like a retro column. It was one of the things that I was really passionately. I mean, I've been contributing now and then for years but when they really started asking me to contribute to every issue and i had this idea for this column and one of the reasons was you know they have this incredible photo library and i said you know you could just have a, a retro vintage column and just as an excuse to run these amazing photos you have like you just you know the 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 photos are reason enough and I called it the way it was, and that's the name of it. And I still do it now. I've been doing it now for three years or something like that. And it's my favorite thing every month that I get to write. It's like I'm just, you know, every time that there's a special issue like PWI 500 or, or the awards issue that takes up a lot of pages and things, and and Kevin has to cut some of the columns, I'm always like, please, please, please let me still do the way it was. Like you can it, just that, give me that those two pages. That's all I need. So I, I try to get it in there. But. Uh, the reason I'm I'm saying that is I, I think the other person on there who tends to write about old school stuff whenever you can is you. So, yeah. you know, I, I always love checking out the stuff that you'll touch on in there. Uh, it, and it, it, it also speaks to the fact that you've been a wrestling fan a very long time, much longer than me, as a matter of fact. Well, um, Sometimes people ask, what's the difference between being a freelancer and uh, working in the office? Now, as a freelancer, you do more writing, you write more writing on your own and you get your probably your byline in there a little more often as a freelance writer than when you're an editor, you're trying to improve everybody else's work. But the main difference that I didn't really count on was you had access to the photo archives. And when I was the editor, that was the a big joy of the job to write something and go through a hundred years worth of archives to pull out these great photos. And if I think there's one thing that's underutilized in PWI, it's all these classic photos. 
Yes. I mean, particularly, I always enjoyed, we had these, um, I really enjoyed the 70s slides because over the years, they do it different ways. Like if you look at pictures from the 60s, it's just black and white, literal paper photos. Yeah, a lot of prints. Know. Yeah. Right. Then in the late 70s, they went to color slides for everything. And you saw some of those pictures using those fantastic covers from the 70s and early 80s. Um, so I don't know what the solution is. I know Kevin really fights to include everything as it is and, and keep it current. But if people only knew the, the treasure trove of, of photos that are there. I know. And I worked for years with Frank Vitucci at WWE, oh, yeah. who had been Bill's photo assistant over there at London. Or in the dark room. Yeah. And <laughs> and Frank was like, Frank was, people don't realize this, Frank is the photo editor of WWE. He's been there for 23 years. He is the director of their entire photo department. He started out as a photo assistant for Bill Apter at London Publishing or Kappa, whatever it was at that time. And he became the liaison. He became the go-between. I don't want to shortchange anybody else. I know that Stu worked really hard also to build the relationship between um, Kappa or between Pro Wrestling Illustrated and WWE better than it had been in many, many years. And But Frank was so instrumental in that because he knew everyone over there and he would physically go back and forth. He became the go-between. I remember we would send him to Pennsylvania when we needed like a bunch of things and he would go and make a trip because again, people knew him on both sides. So I'm really putting him over here, but Frank was so important. He also helped get me on the, the staff at PWI too. Once I left WWE, but he used to talk about the photo library and how incredible it was. And like, I remember him always saying that taking, you know, that the photo library at PWI was so much more, inclusive and comprehensive than what wwe had obviously but wwe with wwe everything they had a limitless budget so everything was better preserved they were able to digitize everything they were able to have a like a full staff of photo interns just categorizing and collating everything and and he always used to say like if we could combine those two ideas if you could have the content of what PWI has with the level of budget and organization that WWE has it would be just you know this unstoppable reference source well WWE has always really struggled to have or find classic photos before 1985 because if you see those photos like from the uh beginnings of the old wwf magazine they're all taken by the same guy steve taylor i believe was his name Steve taylor yeah so right. uh when i started there uh i was i was like you at wwe over there where i i would just every excuse i could find to go into the photo room go through the file cabinets i was like obsessed there would be times where i would just say i'm sure they hated me i would just say to the photo editors like just don't worry, I'll, I'll handle it. Like, let me take this off your plate. I, I I can do it. I can go find what I need. And I would just like to just go through it. And what I found was, yes, yeah, Steve Taylor, he was the first on-staff photographer they had. He started with them in 1983. And I could tell this because what I was able to ascertain was the first photo shoots they did where it was their own proprietary photographer and, you know, where, where the other photographers weren't allowed. It was August 1983. So from August 83, because that's when they started 
production on Victory Magazine. It was right around that time because Backlund was still the champion. They didn't even have Hogan yet, uh, but Vince was ramping it up, you know. But so that's their limit. If it's if it's before '83, they ain't got it. And of course, obviously, if it's outside WWE, they didn't have it. Now that's changed over the years because they've accumulated a lot of different libraries and things that they've bought out and people don't realize what those video libraries they own in many cases came photo libraries as well because i saw them delivering them in on pallets so it's very real but still the the pwi archive is incredible because it goes from you could have a picture of you know william muldoon if you want one or you could have a picture of orange cassidy if you want one like there's no other archive on earth that could do that for you and i always tell kevin like I know he's going to hear this and say, oh, Solomon's at it again. But like if Kappa could find a, a book publishing house to partner with, if they need that or if they don't have the, you know, the the wherewithal, but photo books, like almost like the way George Napolitano used to do with Burt Sugar, they could do beautiful photo books, limited run. I know it's not going to be a New York Times bestseller, whatever, limited edition, put them out. They'll sell like crazy. You put out. 10,000 of them. They'll fly. I'm telling you. I just wish they would do it. Yeah. I, well, they even have drawings of Farmer Burns. Yes. <laughs> Going back to 1900. <laughs> and I do know that Shane McMahon always showed extreme interest in the photo collection um, because he would occasionally meet with Stu. And because all this, you know, it was a friendly relationship in regard to photos, you know, especially when I was there where all they had to do was send an email, like in particular, when they would put it together, you remember those great uh, documentaries they would put together during that era, like mm -hmm. the, the Dusty Rhodes story or the Roddy Piper story. And uh, we would go into the archives and we would find photos and magazine covers that, you know, they could use in the documentary. And, but there was contracts involved that we had to sign a contract with them that this was a reciprocal arrangement between us uh but my understanding is shane would often ask you know are your photos under climate control how are those stored exactly so back then the way i saw pwi's fate playing out i always thought that wwe would make a grand offer just for the photo archive and then we'd be out of business. They'd buy they'd buy the photos and the logo, and then they would kill us. That's what I that's what I, I thought was going to happen. I think that might have been under consideration, um, Harry. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't happen. Maybe they just didn't see my theory about WWE with these things is always this: whenever you hear that WWE didn't buy something, it's not because they couldn't afford it. It's because they didn't want it enough. Or the asking price, even though they could afford it because they could afford any asking price, the asking price was above what they considered it to be worth. Like I would see that happen with some of the video archives where um, you'd every now and then there would be one that would get away. Like, you know, they bought Crockett and WCW, obviously. They bought um, Florida. They bought AWA, the Smoky Mountain. But was I it know the UWF they didn't really get. I mean, not, they show Mid-South wrestling, but. I don't know. No, they, they got it. UWF they, was part of that deal. But like, okay. I know, I know in recent years, there was talk where they lost out on the Houston wrestling collection. The Paul Bosch video archives wound up going to the, the NWA, 
which was right before Billy Corgan bought it, actually. I forget who owned it at the time. The NWA got it, and they used it as the foundation of an NWA streaming service, which I don't know if it still exists, but it was mainly Houston footage. And I remember at the time, the the everybody was like, well, uh, how could this be? Uh, WWE obviously you know, has more money, but it was simply a case where they just didn't consider it worth whatever it was being asked for it. So, I mean, like, I, I think sometimes that is the saving grace because if WWE wanted to, I'm sure they could have bought PWI. I know it was being talked about at the time in the office. I could tell you that. I remember I, I've even talked to Al about this over the years. I remember hearing conversations about it, rumblings, because let me tell you something. That's the reason Shane was asking those questions. Mm-hmm. And he, he was trying to figure out you know, an angle of, of what would they, you know, what would they do with these photos and that kind of thing. But I'm glad it didn't happen because there's something a little scary about all of wrestling history coming under the ownership of one giant monolith. Like, a, like another great photo archive is owned by Brian last uh, of right here at Arcadian Vanguard. He's got, he bought from Brian Bucantis what had originally been the Norm Keitzer archives for wrestling review the wrestling news and all those old uh, third party programs they used to make in the seventies, that kind of thing. Um, also the ring wrestling, which was an amazing magazine. So he's got that photo archive, which is incredible. And I tease him about it. Cause he's like, what do you mean? The PW archive is the greatest photo wrestling photo archive. Well, here's the difference the the one, the kites are one is awesome up until about the mid 1980s. Right. But the PWI one covers everything, you know? Well, I know whenever someone visits the PWI offices, that's the first thing they want to see or that they're introduced to. Um, I'd been freelancing, I think only for a month. And I thought, you know, I should just go up there and visit those guys. So I started freelancing in January and I drove up in February. You know, the fact that the PWI moved from Long Island to Ambler, Pennsylvania was a big help to me because it made it within easy driving distance. I could be there in three hours time. And um, Dave Lanker met me you know, at the door. He said, why don't you come look at our photo archives? And of course, he showed me like the obligatory X-rated drawer. Where, you know, the, <laughs> the apartment wrestling. The apartment wrestling, the things that could never make the magazine. And they were very considerate, though. They had the the midget wrestling files on on the bottom the bottom <laughs> door of the file cabinet. Just so and you know, I, we we yeah. had a file like that too at WWE of the pictures that could never be used. We also had that, so it's pretty yeah. common. And for me to go through it, my peak reading the magazines where I just it was an insatiable appetite because there was no internet, you know, there was no network of any kind was from 83, I would say, to 87, where I just inhaled every, everything uh, that came out. But um, it was such a great feeling. It's hard to explain to fans who came along after that. And I, you know, yeah. for, for everyone, it's very unique. Like I grew up in the city. I grew up in Brooklyn uh, where everything's in walking distance. You know, everything is very, you know, pedestrian foot traffic and all that. So like I have these fond memories of being a teenager And just like the walk to the newsstand, you know, because I was a big comic book fan, too. So, like, I'm going there to get my comic book. Depending on the overlap of the age, there were some years where I was 
buying both, but I'm going to get those wrestling magazines. And then the walk back home and you had the magazines in your hand and you're looking, there would always be more than one because there were tons of wrestling magazines. You're looking forward to reading them. Like it's just all those pieces are gone, you know? Yeah. I I wasn't one of these guys, seriously, but I had a friend who kept, kept getting kicked out of the local pharmacy because back in those days, you could have five to six pro wrestling magazines on a newsstand. And uh, he would just stand there and read them all day. And they said, well, are you going to buy one of those? And, you know, yes. you'd have to move on. But every wrestling fan knew the wrestler, Inside Wrestling, were coming out the first Tuesday of each month. Sports Review Wrestling, the third Tuesday. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the fourth Tuesday. We all just knew that. We knew to hit that newsstand. And I don't know about you, but uh, another thing that <laughs> needs to be addressed is I know in the big newsstand by me, and there were other ones too, because you'd because that would be the other thing too. Wherever you happen to be, you'd pop in if there was a newsstand and just go. I wonder what wrestling magazines they have. I, for whatever reason, invariably the wrestling magazines would be very close to the porn. Sometimes either right under it or next to it. So there would be this awkwardness of like uh, the combination of I, I shouldn't be looking at this. I have to make sure I'm averting my eyes, but also. You don't want the guy like you'd have to make it really clear. Like I'm looking at the wrestling magazines. That's what I'm here to buy wrestling magazines because you don't want the guy, you know, thinking I'm I'm looking at, you know, Hustler. Right. So that was another that was another these little these little details of being a wrestling fan in those days that only people of a certain age uh, can relate to. Well, um, when you couldn't get to the newsstand enough or yeah. Or, you know, you, you've read everything that's possible. You know, you start hitting the harder stuff, which those would be the back issues that you order. Yes. And they had a very cool way of handling that back then. Like if you ordered a couple older wrestling magazines for, say, $2 a piece, like the wrestler inside wrestling, they would send you these brightly colored uh, back issue ads. So you didn't have to cut them out of your own wrestling magazine at home. And you could, oh, I can use these that they've sent me in the envelope. And um, so I started one magazine that was really hard to find where I live was Sports Review Wrestling. I, I probably didn't get the same distribution. It seemed to me right was like the redheaded stepchild. Like once they use all the good photos for Wrestler Inside and PWI, they saved the blurry one for Sports <laughs> Review. Right. So I would order back issues of that. And of course, if you bought it, in 1983 or before that, you always had the apartment wrestling, and it would be Sonara versus the sultry school teacher. And I remember getting those in the mail, and I would open them up, and my mom would just like <laughs> kind of look like, "What are you really reading?" But you know what? She must have really trusted me as a kid because she didn't really say, "Let me see that." <laughs> I can't believe some of the ads that would run. See, that's a little before my time because by the time I got into it. There really the sex was dolls. There, yeah, there was none of that in there by that point. Because I don't <laughs> think PWI never had a lot of that. Like, I remember even Stu was telling me that PWI started because they had a separate distributor that Stanley Weston had procured. And so they were going to be distributed by a totally different company. So that company was looking for a totally different product. So they were leaning towards a more like serious sports oriented kind of magazine rather than the didn't, didn't want blood on the cover. Yeah, the, the blood, the sex. But sometimes you go back to those 
And it's like incredible. Yeah, there's there'll be sex dolls. There'll just be straight up porn being sold in the back, or there's ads for like handguns, or just all these weird like self defense or like how to get women to fall in love with you. Just these really strange crap. They yeah. crap where you could hypnotize a girl into liking you or, or drug you could, stuff. There'd be like the X-ray uh, glasses you could see yes. through walls. You know. There was the well, you remember the pen pals? Now that was a little dicey. I, I don't know, man. Uh there seemed to be uh some people on those pages that were A far too old to be on those pages, and B, I'm not entirely sure that they were just looking to connect with other wrestling fans. Well, they were creepy, and proof of that is there's a very young James Mitchell in the world of pen pals. So if you look at some of those uh, back issues, maybe mid-70s, there's little James Mitchell. He's about 10 years old. I think his favorites are all bad guys or something like But there he is with his little turtleneck. And you do see uh, occasionally people who became prominent in the wrestling business. I saw Taz. I saw Taz on one. Yeah. But yeah, but then there'd be the guy who's like 45 years old. And, you know, he, he's he's really interested in the girl wrestlers. And you're just gone, yeah. boy. I don't know. There should have been a, maybe a little better screening process as to who got onto this <laughs> onto this page. Uh, but, yeah, that's another thing. And uh, another thing long gone in wrestling magazines, pen pals. Mm-hmm. The apartment probably, wrestling. Probably a lot of discovery ID moments back then. I, I can't even results. bring up. Like I can't even bring up the apartment wrestling to Kevin. He doesn't even want to hear it. He's like, I don't. We're not bringing back. I, I, not that I want to bring back apartment wrestling, but even when I talk about it, like as something amusing that the magazines used to do, he's like, we're not going anywhere near that. The apartment that that'll get us killed, you know. And as a kid, when I would find older ones that had that in them, I would always think to myself, like, because I'm I'm a kid, and I'm going like. I don't understand. Like, is this, is there really this weird underground network of women wrestling each other in apartments in New York city? Like, why is this happening? The, the, the click of wealthy industrialists smoking cigars (laughs) and, and the stories were longer than your average uh, wrestling story. Your average wrestling story was just four pages. That might've run about six pages. And uh, I believe Dan Shockett wrote most of those. And he had experience writing for Playboy or at least some off-color magazines, but I mean, they were it was interesting reading. And I, I think for the articles, but if you notice, a lot of them had the same, like the same picture in the background. Looks hmm. like a little orphan boy from the Middle Ages. That <laughs> whether it was supposed to have taken place in New York or L.A., it's somehow they work in that same picture into every uh, pictorial. And um, I think some of the photography was but from Theo Eret, who was mm-hmm. like the the probably best wrestling photographer there ever was. He he was like he, a mm-hmm. you know like a great sports photographer. Excuse me. You might and have I, seen. Um, sorry, sorry, Brian, but you might no. have seen. There's this huge volume of may like girl wrestling photos that was published. I'm thinking probably around. 20 years ago and a lot of it was apartment wrestling a lot of a lot of it was, were women that were based on the west coast mm-hmm. and most of the photos were from thero era yes i have seen that book yeah i've never i've seen it 
around. I've never had the chance to look through it, but yeah, and um, it was it was him, and and that was another thing. How you think about the the um, the type of I guess I don't know the type of readers they were going for back then because it's funny we think of wrestling and especially in later years as being something that really targets kids you know or like young people and um it was very very different type of demographic that those that those wrestling magazines back then were were being created for it seemed like well a, a little bit of trivia i believe the last apartment wrestling article appeared in the january 1983 issue i could be wrong about that but it's a wow. great cover of the magnificent morocco with the intercontinental title belt some people may actually remember that cover and the last pictorial featured uh, the future Nancy Benoit. Wow. And she's in, in that. Is, uh, Kevin Sullivan would often send pictures of Nancy to the magazine for different purposes to try to get her in the magazine. And I believe right, that's the last one that was run. She was the fallen angel in Florida yes, at that time. That's yeah, right. Doing that. Very young. Thing. Very young. Yes, she was. Yes, she was. But so then you were, uh, but you go back how far back do you go back as a wrestling fan then um i would say late 1981 okay. because um where i live uh in maryland pretty rural area and uh, we only had two tv stations we had a cbs affiliate and the pbs station and uh then finally we got a new abc station i remember running off the school bus every night and running in and like zipping the dial okay is channel 47 on yet? And that went on for about two months. And one day there it was. And that weekend, it was a Saturday, 1 PM. I saw WWF championship wrestling for the first time. And I don't even think I ever knew what pro wrestling was as a concept. So I was just like stuck on it, right? Like right away and would watch it every week. Um, but we also were fortunate where we got uh, TV stations not quite as clear, but you still watch these stations that were out of Virginia Beach, Virginia. So that was the hotbed for Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Yeah. So I watched both of those at, at the same time. You know they what were, I find? Yeah. yeah, go on. I was going to say WWF, if you had to compare the two, was more like a boxing template. You know, you yes. had the ring it out there. You had Joe McHugh. And I'm so Joe McHugh. They would introduce the ringside doctors and the ringside judges who never came into play. And, but if you watch Mid-Atlantic, it was like you were watching the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> and I think probably Georgia wrestling was more so. You had the good old boys, Tommy Rich, Johnny Rich, Tom Pritchard. They're all looking out for each other. Then you might have like a crazy cooter kind of character like Jimmy Valiant. But it was very informal compared to the very uh, staid WWF wrestling. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was actually going to bring that up because uh, because of Peacock, I've been watching a lot of a Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling from that kind of like 80, 81, 82. And I'm also watching WWF Championship Wrestling, those new ones that they put up there from like 80, 81. And you're right. You know, nostalgia is one thing. And I know I grew up in the Northeast and I wasn't watching wrestling back then, but there's still some nostalgia I'd heard the names. I had older relatives and friends who watched it. There's Bruno, of course, who's like a god. But if you strip away the nostalgia, I mean, yes, the WWF show in that at that time is a much drier kind of show than most of 
pro wrestling, even in that era. It's very, like you said, it's very straightforward. It's almost like you're watching boxing. There are very few interviews, except, I guess, when they would do the localized promos, which are not included on Peacock. And it's very, like, the announcers are very, very serious. You don't really see angles. Like, they do the Bruno and Larry Zabisco angle, which is unbelievable. But it's, like, the only real major angle that's going on. Whereas when you watch the Mid-Atlantic stuff and the Southern stuff, it's definitely more like wild and crazy. Like you don't know what the hell's going on. What could happen? No, no next. ring announcer. No right. Ring There's, announcer. It's just Bob Cottle basically just telling you who the guys are. And then, and all the promos, just one after another, just crazy promos, crazy promos. It's definitely a, a very different feel. And it's interesting because back then the wrestling fans were all siloed in their own territories. And it makes you wonder if sometimes, uh, that's you know the fans didn't know any better, so maybe if they were exposed to all different kinds of wrestling, they might have gravitated to one over another. You know, mm-hmm. I just lived in a unique geographic area where I was at the very southern tip of the WWF territory, but on the northern end of the Mid Atlantic. So I got to compare the two. Now, um, you inspired me to watch that run of championship wrestling programs because you mentioned in your column maybe about a year ago, yes, and you pointed out how really the only real angle that was happening was Larry Zabisco turning on Bruno. And I hadn't really, I hadn't watched that and watched it play out week after week. But one thing that's missing today that I appreciate looking back at those, the subtlety of things. Yes. Um, They tried to give both sides, like, you know, Larry is dealing with an issue because he's the one that demands the match against Bruno. He said, I've lived in Bruno's shadow for years. You know, I can only prove myself to myself by facing him in the ring. And I remember Vince McMahon with the great pains to explain Zabisco's point of view and why he would feel that way. And then obviously when the dirty deed is done and he turns on Bruno, well, you see why he turned on Bruno a little bit because Bruno's kind of playing with him. Like I'm not, you know, I don't really want to hurt you, Larry. And that was insulting to him. And he grabs that wooden chair and he hits Bruno over the head. And just the look on the faces of those old ladies and that That's... audience, that was incredible. Yeah, because you got blood. I mean, there, there, you know, there's a puddle of blood. Gorilla Monsoon comes out, who, who out of character, basically, you know, who is basically the producer of the show. He comes out, he's checking on Bruno. Like, yeah, it really did. There's fans like gasping, screaming. But I think, don't you think part of why it works so well, too, and it's done so well, is that it wasn't something that was constantly happening. The idea was, like, if you watch Monday Night Raw, it's a three-hour show. There's like about 12 different angles that happen. Like every match, somebody's (laughs) interfering, something's exploding, somebody did something to somebody, somebody's turning on somebody. Like, we expect it. If that doesn't happen on the show, we're bored. But back then, it's like, they were trying to create this baseline, right? You're watching a professional sports broadcast. You're watching a wrestling show. You're going to see wrestling matches. Here's a match. Here's another match. Here's another match. So they established this baseline so that then when something crazy happens, it really blows you away and it really stands out and it pulls you in because it's not constantly happening. Like that's the way they did it back then. And Obviously, I don't think you can do that today, just the way television is and ratings and, and local local TV is dead and you don't have your captive audience. 
but it makes for a very different experience. And I, I enjoy it, even though I said before, yes, it's a little more kind of staid and a little more dry. There's something innately enjoyable. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I'm a baseball fan, so I'm used to sports that are not moving a mile a minute all the time. But there's something strangely comforting about watching those shows. I enjoy yeah. very much. And, and and in subsequent weeks after that big angle, you would think, oh, well, the, the show would be immersed in it from, from then forward. It was not the overarching story. It was more like the undercurrent of the show mm-hmm. where um, I think maybe the, like Bruno wasn't out a long time after it happened. You know, maybe it's the next week or the week after he was back. And you just noticed that he didn't come and commentate during Zabisco's match. <laughs> and then maybe the next week, Vince asked him, yeah, can you make a comment about what happened? No, I'm I'm not in the mood, Vince. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to talk about Larry Zabisco. And, and that went on for several weeks where he was very muted when Zabisco would come up and they didn't really play it up. But of course, probably was happening simultaneously that you don't see is they're probably doing the house show circuit the, exactly. and wrestling in Madison Square Garden. So it's just an undercurrent of the show. It's very subtle. Exactly, because you can't forget, like, the house show was the bread and butter of their business back then. So what they're doing is, and again, you can't see the localized promos on the Peacock version. They don't include it. But what they're doing is they, they'll say things occasionally, like Bruno will say, like, boy, let me tell you, Vince, all I'll tell you is this. If I ever get my hands on Larry one of these days, boy, I'm really going to let them have it. And he's <laughs> saying that because they're wrestling each other like every week in some town somewhere. So it's like they're prepping the fan base in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that when the match comes there, oh, my God, it's Bruno versus Larry or the Boston Garden or the Philadelphia Spectrum. So it's like they're not like you said, they're being more subtle about it, but they're preparing you for when it comes to your town. Yeah, it's, it's sort of unrelated, but I got to mention it. Uh, you might have seen my recent column where I talked about where I watched all the uh, 1970s Madison Square Garden shows that are available on Peacock. Yes. And and because I had never seen those in their entirety before. So some things were a revelation to me. But one thing I didn't mention in the column is when someone from outside the WWWF came to town, like NWA world champion Harley Race. They would put him over to the moon and talk him up about how great he was. Uh, Kerry Von Erich, mm. he debuted 1980 in Madison Square Garden. They mentioned the legendary Von Erich family down in Texas. They mentioned Vince, is who I mean, Vince McMahon, the voice of the company back then, talking about David Von Erich and Kevin Von Erich, had the, how they'd already wrestled in Madison Square Garden. But at the same time, they completely criticized their own guys. So you would think that would be like counterintuitive. Like you would want, you would think they would put over their own people over the expense of the out-of-towners, but it was quite the opposite. And um, trying to remember, oh, I, I was never really that impressed by him. Bulldog Brower, you know, he yeah. wrestled, I Maybe it was Frankie Williams and uh, Vince McMahon. I felt like he was getting jabs in there. Like oh, they would do that. They would do that. Absolutely. And, yeah. And he he said, um, you know, Bulldog Brower, you know, he's, uh, he was the star in Australia about 10 years ago. He was the hot ticket. But, uh, you know, mentally, he's not quite the same. And as you can see, he's really let his body go, you know. <laughs> Well, they would do something then, and I'm finding this in working on the Gorilla Monsoon book, is they would allow the announcers to be more critical. 
which they would never do today because it's all about marketing and 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 everything's the greatest thing ever, you know. Whereas then they were trying to sell you on the reality of it. So the reality of it is some guys are better than other guys. Some guys are not having their best day or they're they're not wrestling a good match. So they would point out when, especially with the enhancement guys, they wouldn't hesitate pointing out, well, this guy looks uh, doesn't really look like he's in wrestling shape, Vince, or, uh, well, he's not really putting up much of a fight. You know, they, they would do things like that. And one thing I found, you because you're talking about people coming in from other territories, one thing I noticed from the championship wrestling stuff is this was the era when the WWF had rejoined the NWA. So they recognized the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. And they, but they would have this weird relationship with it where the WWF was a major territory and the, un, some territories were not, and they had their own world champion. Most territories did not. And so it was this weird thing where the NWA world heavyweight champion, when he would show up, like it was Harley race, they would never put him at the very, very top unless he was, uh, you know, when he wrestled backland, they'd never put him at the top. He'd be somewhere else. And yet he would be the only champion that they would refer to as the world heavyweight champion Mm -hmm. the wwf champion would be called the world wrestling federation champion or heavyweight champion and i remember when they had pedro morales when he came back on championship wrestling the first week he comes back this must have been like 1980 joe McHugh announces him as former heavyweight champion of the world pedro morales and then immediately after that every week after he's referred to as former World Wrestling Federation heavyweight champion. And I think it's because they probably were like, ah, we're not allowed to do that. We can't, you know, the NWA is the, that's the only champion that we could refer to as a world heavyweight champion. So it was this weird give and take that was going on, I think. It's remarkable how they'd follow those rules. Yeah. I think it had to burn them a little bit though. It had to be a weird political thing because this is the way I look at it. And I'm a, I'm a biased, obnoxious New Yorker, but I feel like there were territories that really needed the NWA. They needed that connection. They needed the talent influx. They needed the world heavyweight champion coming through. I feel like the WWF territory did not need them. They were not the kind of territory that needed them. There were, I'm sure, other political reasons why they rejoined. I feel like the NWA probably wanted them more. They needed them more to have them as part of the legitimacy of their network. And I think it was sort of a concession. I don't think Vince Sr. was thrilled about having to pay them dues, about having to pay booking fees and things. I think it was like him trying to play nice with the other promoters. It was like almost like they tolerated the NWA. Well, another star that Vince McMahon would put over huge was Dusty Rhodes. Oh, God, and, loved him, yeah. And if you just uh, compare uh, Dusty Rhodes wrestling superstar Graham, which got a huge reaction back in 1978. I mean, they had those three, I guess it was three matches. I think so. But then the following year, uh, Dusty's there. He's wrestling Harley Race for the NWA title. And I noted how it was almost a muted response to Dusty when he was just wrestling Harley Race compared to when he had wrestled Graham a year earlier at the same venue that's so interesting yeah and and i know you know even when they had harley race on on championship wrestling again i i don't know if i read too much into it i always feel like there's these weird political things going on Mm -hmm. behind the scenes because the first time or two they have harley race on 
And it's so weird to see him wrestling like WWF jobbers on championship wrestling as the (laughs) NWA champion. The first couple of times, they really didn't seem to make that big of a deal out of him. They, they, They would be, in fact, stretches of the match where they weren't even talking. It was almost like they were intentionally. It was almost like he was being forced on them in a way. And I even remember one promo he gave where they cut him off in mid promo <laughs> in mid promo and went to commercial however after a couple of weeks of that all of a sudden now Vince and Bruno are like bending over backwards putting over Harley Race how dangerous he is he's the world heavyweight champion blah 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 and i do almost feel like there might have been a phone call from Sam Mushnick or Eddie Graham <laughs> or somebody saying like listen this is our world heavyweight champion. You can't treat him like a mid-carder. You know, I almost feel like there was some of that going on. Yeah. I don't think you're reading too much into it. Um, I recall uh, before one of his Madison Square Garden appearances, e- even for those uh, telecasts, I guess they were on the Madison Square Garden network at the time. They would show footage, like to introduce them. And they showed a match in its entirety between Harley Race and Rick Martell down in Australia on their old world championship wrestling show. And and they, they were just kind of walking through it. Like you're saying, you know, but they said he's the world heavyweight champion defending his title in Australia from the American against the American Rick Martel. I guess they didn't know he was (laughs) from Canada, but I found that interesting. It's, it's great when you can find archival footage within archival footage. Yes. uh, That, that (laughs) reminds me of when I I was watching mid South on the network once and they had footage from the Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman Memphis match because Bill Watts was like doing like handstand somersaults of joy over how Jerry Lawler had taken this outsider, this Hollywood outsider and and given him his uh, his comeuppance. So they actually showed that. Uh, I think also on one of the championship wrestling ones, they showed God, they did show some other. I remember they, they included one of the Shea Stadium matches on there, the match with the Wild Samoans, when they lose the tag team belts to Bob Backlund and and Pedro Morales, they included that on there because they're, and that's an interesting thing too. There's those shows are happening. Those 1980 championship wrestling episodes, they're happening around the same time as that big showdown at Shea 1980 show. And yet if you watch the show, unlike today, you don't really get any kind of sense that there is a huge event on the horizon. Like they're vaguely, they're building the angles. They're building Bruno versus Larry is being built. Even Hogan versus Andre is being subtly built. Hogan is this unstoppable force. Nobody can beat him. They bring up Andre the Giant in promos. You got the Wild Samoans who are like unbeatable tag champs. But nobody is specifically talking about, (laughs) hey, we have this giant show. No marketing. At Shea Stadium coming up. And I think that is also because it was all in the localized promos, which we're not getting on there. Like they were not including that stuff on the main broadcast because they're probably thinking if you don't live in the city, in the general vicinity of Flushing Queens, you're probably not coming to this thing. So why are we going to talk to you about it in, in Providence, Rhode Island? You know, it was, it would be pointless. Well, you mentioned Hulk Hogan. Uh, You may remember they featured him nearly every week. Yes. And he would just uh, manhandle anybody he was against. And I'm thinking, okay, this is uh, this still the winner of 1980. And he didn't even debut in a wrestling ring until 1979. I mean, he was only a year into the business, if that. And here he is getting this big push. 
and Vince is putting him over. This is a great looking athlete, a star of the future. And you can't help but think, did he really think that? Did he really, was he just saying it or did he really see a lot of potential in him at the time? I think he did. I think he had it in the back of his mind, you know, because especially you're thinking 1980. Now, 1980 is the year that Vince, I know, you know, Vince bought the company in 82 from his dad and the payments continued into 83. The deal was finalized in 83. However, Titan Sports was founded in 1980. So in 1980, Vince is already getting his promotional company off the ground He's promoting rock concerts. He's doing small wrestling shows up in New England. He's, he did the evil Knievel thing. And you have to imagine he's already making plans already, even in 1980. I think even in 79, because um, he was the person, I found this out, who was the impetus behind shortening the name and making it hmm. WWF, taking one of the W's out. Because I think even then he was already thinking of, I got to make this thing more marketable. I got to make it more mainstream. So I think he had these thoughts in his head. And I think when the time came and he was trying to find who his guy was going to be, he already knew about Hogan. Now, Hogan wasn't anywhere near as big of a star as he would become because of um, Rocky Three and also the AWA. So I think it was the combination of, oh, my God, this guy is like right on the cusp. He, he, he has mainstream recognition. And I already I know him. I've worked with him before. I know he has the ability to do this and carry this. He has the look. And I think that like put Hogan over the top for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting to watch and to think of what the future held. Yeah. Well, Harry, I could do this all night. I know I promised you at the beginning. I was like, oh, we're not really going to go over an hour. I'm very strict with time. And we, we've we've gone over that hour, not by much. But but um, yeah, I mean, we got up to 1980. We did. Wow. <laughs> we're, we're very forward thinking. We're in the we're just Reagan is about to be inaugurated. We're almost there. Um, but that's how the show goes. I think the people that listen to the show, they wouldn't have it any other way. That's what that's what they want. So that's what I give them. And and Harry, thanks for even giving me your time and being a part of it. Now I've got a check. Check the name off the masthead. Now I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, as I as I move along, on you got the, the list. Yes, I have my list, <laughs> and I'm I'm really blessed because now I've been. It's something like 90 episodes at this point. I'm not sure when this one will will be out there, but and I've very rarely repeated any guests, so I'm very lucky to know so many people like you. Interesting people in and around the business who who are, have such memories and insights and and of being wrestling fans or even just working in and around the business so i'm grateful i'm lucky yeah you're like the old book notes show on c-span where they never had the same author on twice but they did make an exception for richard nixon when he wrote another book so so you're comparing me to c-span now <laughs> okay all right well <laughs> maybe maybe i'm not so glad you came on the show oh. no no i'm kidding Harry, thank you. And, and, with you. and when I start, you know, I, I I think I'd like at some point to do almost like a PWI panel. So if mm. I do that, I'd love to have you come back. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you very much. There you have it, folks. My conversation with PWI senior staff writer, Harry Burkett. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show and being a wrestling nerd with me, another wrestling nerd, who is always up for having these kinds of in-the-weeds conversations, and I hope that you, the listeners out there, 
enjoyed that conversation. I know a lot of you out there may be able to relate to a lot of what we talked about. So I hope that that was as fun for you as it was for me. And speaking of fun, we've got a big one next week. Please do keep listening. Next week's episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, episode 90, I have with me one of the greatest ring announcers of all time, Gary Michael Capetta. Gary, who I first interviewed, well, I interviewed him many years ago. We'll talk about that. But I first interviewed him prior to this for the Gorilla Monsoon book. And then Gary agreed to be a guest on the show. So make sure you check out next week's episode for Gary Capetta. It's going to be a good one. And beyond that, if you keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle, we have many other great guests on the way. Jamie Hemmings of Slam Wrestling will be here. Bradley Craig, the UK historian and writer, is returning to Shut Up and Wrestle. He will be here as well. Andrew Wilson, former creative director for WWE and one of those Titan Tower employees that you guys love to hear from, he will be on the way to Shut Up and Wrestle as well. So keep on listening to this show. You can find it at our website, suawpod.com. You can subscribe to it. It's also available on all the usual podcasting platforms. Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, and all the rest. And while you're doing that, please join the Facebook group, if you haven't already, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We would love to have you there. Additionally, there are many other projects that I work on that I love to tell you about each week, chief among them being The Wrestling News. TheWrestlingNews.com or go to Arcadian Vanguard's YouTube page and find it there or all the usual podcast locations. You will find The Wrestling News. I am the news director. Give it a listen. I guarantee that you will not regret it and you'll be listening to it every morning to get your daily dose of wrestling news. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik by yours truly, is available at Amazon or wherever books are sold. I do have autographed copies of that as well as my superheroes book. If you're interested, give me a holler at Solomon at yahoo.com. The magazines that I write for, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. You can get it at pwi-online.com. The current issue on sale is the PWI 500 issue, which also includes my tribute to the late, great Terry Funk. I encourage you to pick it up. There's also Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. My author webpage on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer, and on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon. I thank you very much for listening to Shut Up and Wrestle this week, and I ask you to please hold the people you love Tell them you love them. Do it every chance that you can get. It's the most important thing that you can do. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>